delighted that you've made it your decision to be here today, and I hope and trust that you've got your Bible with you, and eager to take that and study with us as we continue a study concerning the Sermon on the Mount. I encourage you to get your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, but we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6 here in just a few moments as we continue our study. Before you are the six lessons that we have planned to deal with the Sermon on the Mount, we're ready for lesson number three as we deal with sincere devotion in the kingdom. Let's back up and see where we're going and where we've been. In the Sermon on the Mount, the message and the thrust of the sermon is about the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about. I know that because previous to the Sermon on the Mount, the text says that Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was preaching. So that tells me this message was the gospel of the kingdom. It had to do with the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom is repeatedly mentioned throughout in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 3, verse 10, verse 19, and 20. We'll see it again uh, even in our study this morning in chapter 6 and in verse 10. We'll see it later in our next study in chapter 6 and verse 33 and in 7 and 21. So he talks about the kingdom throughout. The sermon has something to do with the kingdom of God. It's all about the kingdom of God. We presented this outline each time that this is the outline as if this were the one Jesus preached from, that there were three major points to the sermon. There is the section that deals with the citizens of the kingdom. That was our first study. We'll say more about that in a moment. Then we move into the second section of the sermon, and that's the righteousness of the kingdom. We'll, we saw that the righteousness of the kingdom harmonizes with the Old Testament. It exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And today we're going to be talking about the righteousness of the kingdom has everything to do with our relationship to God. It also has to do, we'll see in a couple of weeks, our relationship to fellow man, chapter 7. And so we're focusing on our relationship to God in chapter 6. So the first study, we talked about the citizens of the kingdom, the kind of people that make up the kingdom. Here are those who enter the kingdom, and here's the influence they have on the world. And then in our last study, we talked about Matthew chapter 5, 17 to 48. The righteousness of the kingdom doesn't set in disarray with the Old Testament, but is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and it exceeds and is in contrast to the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's look at the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6, if you will. Matthew chapter 6, 1 to 18. This focuses on sincere devotion in the kingdom. Jesus is saying in this section, when we get through, here's the conclusion that we'll come to. That in my kingdom, if you're going to be in my kingdom and be a part of my kingdom, that involves sincere devotion and not some kind of front that you put on. That's what we're going to learn from 6 verses 1 to 18. What Jesus does here is deal with three things that hinder true devotion. And in this he talks about, and his point is, sincere devotion unto God. Dedication. That's what my kingdom involves. He uses three common practices of the day that we're going to talk about. And he talks about this principle that in the kingdom, pride must be eliminated. The motive is not yourself. If you're going to be in my kingdom, this is not a kingdom where you promote yourself. And your focus is on yourself. Your focus is on, is on service and devotion unto God. We can have pride in the most noble of acts when they're done for corrupt purposes. 
So here may be trying to help someone else, but with the wrong motive, that's driven by pride. And Jesus seeks to eliminate that. It is not being seen by men that is condemned and wrong in this context, but the desire to be seen by men. And we're going to see that as the text unfolds. There are three things that this text talks about. He talks, first of all, in verses 1 to 4 about giving to the needy, verses 1 to 4. Beginning at verse 5 through 15, he talks about prayer. And then in verses 16, 17, and 18, he talks about fasting. In all three of these areas, there must be sincerity. There must be sincerity as you give to the need, to those who are in need. There must be sincerity as you pray to God. There must be sincerity as you have self-denial and self-control. Maybe another way of wording that is in these three areas. In areas of benevolence, in areas of worship, and in areas of self-denial, there must be sincerity. And it must not be for the purpose to be seen of men or to receive the praises of men. Let's talk about the first of those sections, verses 1 to 4, benevolence. Giving to those who are in need. Let's look at verses 1 to 4. Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore when you do a charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly I say to you they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who is in secret, sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. Now before we talk about what that text is saying, let's back up and interpret that context, those verses, in light of some Old Testament principles. And that is the law, the Old Testament law had provided for those who were in need. God had always said, I want you to take care of those in need. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. Let's notice in the law. Notice in Exodus 23. In Exodus 23, beginning at verse 10, he said, Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its uh, produce, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You gather all your crops for six years, but in the seventh year, you, you leave that for the poor. God said, let's take care of the poor and let's see that they have that which you, they may need. Look at Leviticus chapter 10, or 19 and in verse 10. And you shall glean your vineyard, nor, uh, you, nor, you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. God had a plan for taking care of those who were poor. I want you to take care of those who are poor. I want you to help those who are in need. Well, even in the prophets, the same thing was taught. We'll not take the time to trace over to Amos, but we'll go to Jeremiah, if you will. Jeremiah chapter 22, and notice in verse 16. Jeremiah 22 and verse 16, he judged the cause of the poor. In other words, he defended, your footnote will say, the cause of the poor and the needy. God defends those who are needy. We see the same kind of principle in Amos chapter 2. Now what I'm trying to see here is in the Old Testament, God had said, I want those who are in need taken care of. I want you to help those who are in need. So whatever Matthew 6 is talking about, he's not saying don't take care of those who are in need. Jesus encouraged in the very context where we are considering, let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Perhaps you've gone to Jeremiah. Let's go back now to Matthew chapter 5, back in the Sermon on the Mount. And notice in verse 7, Jesus encouraged the care of the needy. In fact, he said, blessed are those, verse 7, are the merciful. 
Well, they shall obtain mercy. If you are a merciful person, you'll help those who are in need. Later in the sermon, chapter 7, that was earlier, by the way, in chapter 5. Chapter 7 and verse 12 is, you would that men do to you, do even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You treat others the way you want to be treated. That would encourage the care of the needy. So what is he saying in this context? Jesus is warning that there is a danger that your motive could be wrong in taking care of, them, uh, of those who are in need and not the fact that others see or others know. He is not saying it's wrong for others to see you taking care of the needy or to know you're taking care of the needy, but he's focusing on the motive in my kingdom. Motive has everything to do with what you do. There must be sincere devotion. Jesus in this context talks about public performance. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. If you've left that context, perhaps you're still there. But notice in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 2, that when you do charitable deeds, do not sound the trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. That suggests some idea of public performance. He is not saying that it's wrong to do that there, that if someone at the synagogue has need, you take care of that, or if they're in the streets, you help those who are in need. He's not saying that's wrong. That was a common place for beggars, according to Acts 3 and John 9. The beggars would be on the streets. They would be perhaps at the synagogue or at the temple, wherever the case may be. So he's not saying don't help them there, but it's the motive in order to be seen by men to get the praise and the credit for what you've done. Jesus talks about private alms that are done for public advertisement. Here, I want to take care of this one who is in need, but let's look around and see who's taking note, and I want to make sure others are seeing, so when I take care of the need, others have taken note of that. Now notice at verse 3, don't even praise yourself. He said, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't even praise yourself. You should just do that and forget it without thinking about how good you just did. Rather than patting yourself on the back, look what great things I have done. That's not sincere devotion. I think that idea is seen in Matthew chapter 25. You can turn there if you wish, but you remember in Matthew chapter 25 in the judgment scene that on the day of judgment, some Jesus would say, you, uh, you fed me and you took care of me and you, you visited me when I was in prison. And the question would be, when did we do that? When did we do that? We're not aware that we did that to you. Well, when you did that to others, you were doing that unto me. In other words, they forgot about their principle. They did good, but they weren't bragging about their good. They weren't seeking that everyone to know that. So what's Jesus saying in this context? What he's saying is that the citizens of the kingdom should be concerned with devotion to God and not merely a reputation of devotion and praise of men. That's what he's driving at throughout this whole context. Now, here's something quite interesting to learn from this context. We could help the needy for the same reason others don't help those who are in need. Here's someone who's in need, and here's someone who said, I'm not going to take care of them because I want to keep that for myself. That's selfishness. But here is one who rushes over and said, I want to help them, but I want to make sure that everyone's taking note. Everybody see that I'm taking care? That's also selfishness. Same motive as the person who did not do anything, focusing merely on their self. So his point is sincere devotion. Let's move to the second subject. Still dealing with sincere devotion in the kingdom. Not only giving to the needy, do that. Doesn't matter if someone sees it, but don't do it for the purpose of being seen of men. He says the same thing with reference to prayer, with reference to worship. What's your motive in that? Well, I want you to notice beginning at verse 5. He's saying, do not pray 
as the religious hypocrites. He's going to later talk about the heathen. Don't pray like the heathen. So let's begin at verse 5 now. He said, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corner of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in the secret will reward you openly. Now we'll come back to verse 7 in a moment. What have I just learned? Here's what the Lord condemns. He is not condemning public praying. He is not saying, Don't sh- make, or just make sure no one sees you praying. Don't let anybody see you praying in public. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about praying with the intention of being seen and honored by men. Don't pray like they pray. It is that inner disposition that counts. Let's go back to verse 6. Men praying on the, in the synagogues and on the corner of the streets that they may be seen by men. It's with the attitude, though they may not say this, but hey, everybody, pay attention. Did, did you notice I'm praying over here? I'm religious. I'm dedicated. I'm devoted. Did you take notice I'm praying? In case you didn't notice, hey, 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 pay attention. I'm praying over here. Now, they may not say that, but that's the attitude they have. And Jesus condemns that attitude. It is that inner disposition that counts. The emphasis in this context is not on the place, but on the attitude. He is not saying you have to pray in a secret place. Don't ever, don't ever, don't ever try to pray in public where people take note of that. That's not what he's saying. If so, then what about Paul and Silas praying in Acts chapter 16 in prison where others were taking note of that? It is not the place, but the attitude. The emphasis is not on secrecy, but sincerity. You see, when you pray to your Father in secret, that is sincere. No one is noticing, no one is taking note of that, but you still pray with that earnestness that you did when you were in public. Again, it's not the place, it's the attitude. It's not secrecy, but sincerity. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, this is the way that it is. Perhaps the greatest hindrance to prayer are not things that are around us. We often talk about our surroundings are a hindrance to prayer. Maybe it's noise or maybe it's distractions or things that call for our attention. The greatest hindrance to prayer is not the things around us, but it's pride within us. Jesus is focusing on that. That's the greatest hindrance to prayer. Now let's go to 7 and 8. Don't pray like the hypocrites who pray to be seen of men, he said. They want everybody to take note of that. Sincere devotion. But then he turns in 7 and 8 and do not pray like the non-religious heathen. What's he talking about? Let's get 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. Don't come back to verse 9. Let's just talk about 7 and 8. Don't pray like the non-religious heathen. You see, the pagans prayed on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Perhaps they prayed out of fear and distrust for their gods. They prayed often and thought that if they kept on, they would finally be heard. And for example, we have that in 1 Kings chapter 18. You remember this, this, this contest at Mount Carmel. You take just a moment and jump over to 1 Kings chapter 18. I want us to focus at verse 26. 
1 Kings chapter 18, and I want you to notice at verse 26 now, that Elijah, backing up to verse 25, said to the prophets, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, uh, for there are many, and call on the name of your God and, and put a fire under it. Uh, but put no fire under it, rather. So they took the bullet that they had been given and they prepared it and they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. That's the point I want you to see. They're perhaps thinking that, you know, we've, we've prayed for an hour and our God hadn't heard us. If we pray for another hour, he may hear us. If we pray even for a third hour or fourth hour, maybe he'll hear us. They prayed on and on and on. That's the pagans. We'll be heard finally if we keep praying. Don't be like that. More about that in a moment. Do not use vain repetition as the heathens do. He's not talking about the repeating of words that's wrong. Some have misapplied the text saying that if you say the same thing at the end of the prayer that you did at the beginning, it's vain repetition. Or you say the same thing at the closing prayer of a service that you did at the beginning, that's vain repetition. That is not vain repetition at all. In fact, what Jesus is focusing on is something that's vain and empty from the start. It's not that he was good the first time, but the next time it becomes vain because it's repetitious. That's not what he's talking about at all. In fact, the English Standard said empty phrases. The New American Standard said meaningless repetition. The New International says keep on babbling. I like what the New Century says. And when you pray, do not be like those people who don't know God. They continue saying things that mean nothing, thinking that God will hear them because of their many words. If I say more, maybe God will hear me. It's empty from the start. Perhaps some modern day examples is the Hindu will. Where they have their prayers written and they spin the will. And, and each spin of the will means so many prayers. And so they spin and spin. So they're offering more and more prayers. Until they have hundreds of prayers going up before their God. The first spin of the will is meaningless. It means nothing. It's empty. There's no meaning to it. Or the Hail Marys that the Catholics may offer. Is empty from the start. Or perhaps more for us is the mindless prayer. Here is a prayer that's offered and here's a meaningless phrase. There is no sincerity. It's just a phrase of words that I'm uttering before God. It becomes meaningless from the very start. So he's saying don't pray like the hypocrites who want everybody to take notice of that. That's not sincere. But neither is that prayer that's offered before God where I'm just uttering phrases where I'm not even thinking about the words. They're meaningless from the start. That's the idea. There are those, according to our text in Matthew chapter 6, that think they would be heard for their many words, the text said. There's nothing that says that prayer has to be long or has to be short. There's nothing in the text that says that at all. In fact, there are many prayers in the Bible that were brief. For example, in the garden. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as I will. And that was his prayer. And by the way, he prayed that same prayer three times. There was repetition, but it wasn't empty. There was sincerity in every word that he uttered. So there's nothing that says a prayer has to be long to be acceptable or even short to be acceptable. Do you remember the prayer of the publican that was accepted? His prayer was, God be merciful to me, a sinner. That was his prayer. That was it. On that occasion. And we're not heard because we say more words than we did at the last time or that someone else may offer unto God. It has to do with 
our sincerity. What Jesus condemns is the babbling on and on with empty words without sincerity. That's the focal point. When prayers are not focused upon, we're no better than the heathen. That's his point. When you say, well, I want to pray to God, and whether it's in public or whether it's in private, and you utter some words without thinking of the meaning, your prayers are meaningless, and therefore we're praying as the heathen. Jesus then offers a model prayer. We often call this the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus is saying, this is the prayer you need to offer. It's not his prayer. This is your prayer. Don't pray like the religious hypocrites for the show of men. That's not sincere. Don't pray like the one who just babbles on and on with meaningless words. That's insincere. Be sincere in your prayer. And let me give you an example of prayer. So let's see what he says. So back to Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. He said, in this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It wasn't a long prayer, was it? But longer than the others that we mentioned a moment ago. But what do you learn from this model of prayer? Well, let's get the elements of his prayer. He starts off with, a, uh, with an element of praise. Hallowed, great be your name. Reverence be to your name. So I'm learning some elements of prayer. One is it should involve elements of praise. You want to pray and be sincere? Then you offer sincere praise unto God, number one. Secondly, he said, pray that the kingdom come. Your kingdom come. This was prior to the establishment of the kingdom. And so for the kingdom to come, we should not pray that the kingdom would be established because it's already been established. But we might pray that the kingdom comes into the hearts of men. We can still pray that same concept. There are those that the kingdom hasn't come into their hearts. They have not allowed the kingdom, God ruling in their hearts. I might pray that God would allow people to rule their hearts. Or that people would allow God to rule their hearts. We might pray that the Lord's will be done. Not our will, but I want your will to be done. Now notice that, that phrase there in contrast to this insincerity. I want my prayers to be seen of me. My focal point is me. But here, your will be done. I'm not interested in my will. This is humility. This is sincerity. Thy will be done. Give us our daily bread. Not that we want to be blessed with, with more than everybody else, but I just, just bless us with what we need. Our daily necessities. Next, he mentions, forgive us of our debts. Forgive us of our sins. We do sin again. Forgive us of our sins. Now, that's important. Because he says, forgive us of our sins as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us as we forgive others. If we don't forgive others, we're saying, God, don't forgive me. I didn't forgive anyone else. So you forgive me as I forgive another. Don't forgive me. Keep my sins. I need to be forgiving. More about that in a moment. And then he says, lead us not into temptation. Not only pray for the forgiveness of sin, but we might pray about those temptations that lead us to sin. Now that implies there's a sense in which God does lead us into temptation. But God doesn't tempt any man, James 1. But he allows us to be tempted. And the prayer is simply, lead us not, may my temptations be fewer, may my temptations be less. Lead us not into temptation. Now, with those elements of prayer... Let me back up to see those elements of prayer. What Jesus is saying, not that this is a formula. Here is this model of prayer. You utter this prayer, then it becomes that meaningless, like Hail Mary or the Hindu will. Might as well write it on a will and spin it. 
If I memorize the phrases, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Give us this day our daily bread. We go through the phrases without sincerity becomes meaningless. What he's saying, this is the kind of thing you pray for. You pray with praise. You pray about the kingdom. You pray about the will of God. You pray about your daily blessings. You pray about forgiveness of sins. You pray about temptation. You pray about those kinds of things. And you pray sincerely. Sincerity before God. Now let's get 14 and 15. Because it's directly connected to that prayer. He talks about forgiving others. And this has everything to do with this sincere devotion unto God. Is being forgiving of others. In the context, he just mentioned forgive us as we forgive others. Now, he footnotes basically to say in 14 and 15, if you don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive you. Let's begin at verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Pretty simple, isn't it? If we are forgiving, God will forgive us. That was the parable, by the way, Matthew 18, of the unforgiving servant. Remember, Peter had asked, how often shall one forgive until... Uh, if one sins against me, how often shall I forgive him? Until seven times? Remember that? Then Jesus uttered the parable of the unforgiving servant. And ended that, that parable with basically what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. That if you don't forgive, then God's not going to forgive you. If we're forgiving, God will forgive us. If I learn anything from Luke chapter 17, I learned that we need to have a forgiving heart. That is, you go to your brother or your sister, the one that has done you wrong, with an attitude, I want to forgive you, but I want you to repent of that. I want you to turn from your sin so I can forgive you. We need to have that forgiving spirit. Not that I unconditionally forgive. Luke 17 would argue to the contrary. That becomes then a hindrance to our prayer. 1 Peter 3, 7 talks about things can hinder our prayer, lest your prayers be hindered. One of the things that can hinder my prayer is I'm unforgiving. I'm not willing to forgive. Those who have sinned against me. Now let's go to the third and final area. Let's talk about fasting in verses 16 to 18. Or self-denial. We've talked about benevolence. We've talked about worship. And self-denial also needs to be out of sincere devotion unto God. Now, beginning at verse 16, only three verses, he said, When you fast, let's get the verses first and then we'll make some comments. He said, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. But certainly I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in, in the secret place, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Now, let's get a summary, just a quick summary, because... A study of fasting, what the Bible teaches on fasting, could involve a whole study, a whole sermon, maybe even a series within itself. There was a fast that was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement, according to Le Leviticus chapter 16, verses 29 and following. The afflicting of yourselves. You read the text and you say, I didn't see the word fast there. But look for that phrase, afflicting yourselves, which was parallel to the idea, or it was synonymous with the idea of fasting. That was the idea of uh, afflicting yourself. So there was a, a fast that was proclaimed on the Day of Atonement. The king proclaimed a public fast in 2 Chronicles chapter Jehoshaphat in chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles in verse 3. 
There were four annual feasts that were mentioned at different months, four different months, in Zechariah chapter 8 and in verse 19. And I'm just trying to get before you, there were numerous fasts of the Old Testament that had been, been proclaimed. When we come to the New Testament times, though still living under the Old Testament law, Jesus fasted. That he fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He was tempted of Satan. And while he was, that was in that context of fasting when Satan came and said, command these stones to be made bread. So Jesus fasted. Paul was in fastings often, he said. When he talks about his suffering, he said, I was in fasting often. There were many times that I fasted. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 27. But when we take all of the Old and New Testament language concerning fasting and get through with all of that, wrap it all together and sift it out, here's what we come up with. For New Testament Christians, there is no command to fast. In other words, if so, if someone said, well, yes, we are commanded to fast. Okay, when and how often and how long? What, what is the requirement thereof? Where is it? It is permitted, but it's not commanded. You say, well, it is commanded. Okay, where is it commanded, number one? And number two, what do we do with those that are not fasting? Are they sinning? If so, then do we disfellowship those that, that are not fasting? Where is the command and what are, what, are the, what are the details of that command? Is it like the Lord's Supper? Is it on a certain day? But it is certainly permitted. A case in point, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A husband and wife are not to defraud themselves unless they com commit themselves to fasting and prayer. It's certainly permitted. But it is an expression of self-denial. So let's go back to our text. Self-denial is not for public broadcast. He is not saying that if you have denied yourself, make sure no one knows, make sure it's a secret, and don't let the cat out of the bag, don't let anyone ever know that you're fasting or any other form of self-denial. That's not what he is saying. Let's go back to our text beginning at verse 16. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, and they disfigure their faces so they appear to be fasting. The disfiguring their faces suggests they make it worse than what it is. I'm fasting. But I want you to know I'm fasting, and I want you to know how hungry I am. And so they look sad, and they look hungry, and they disfigure their faces. So I want you to appear, I want to, you to know I have made great sacrifice. I want you to know that. If you didn't, I'm going to tell you that. In case you missed it, I'll tell you again. I want you to know great sacrifice I've made on my part. Self-denial is not for public broadcast. Jesus says, here's a concern in my kingdom. That worship and deeds done could be done with the wrong motive. It's not public worship, as we saw earlier, that's wrong, but it's worship for publicity. It is not self-denial that's public that's wrong, but it's self-denial for publicity. He is not saying, if anyone ever finds out you've, you're fasting, you're, you're doomed. That's not what he's saying. But when I am making great sacrifice and I am fasting for whatever purpose, and I want to make sure everybody knows and takes note of the fact I have self-denial, I have self-control. I have more than you have, by the way, because you're not doing what I'm doing. Did you notice that? If you didn't, I'll tell you about it. It's that attitude, it's that spirit that Jesus is dealing with. So what have we seen in this context? We've talked about giving to the need, prayer, and fasting. Three subjects that were common of the day. We might talk about benevolence, worship, and self-denial. That's what Jesus is actually talking about. Here's his point. In this kingdom, our relationship to God must be one of sincerity and not hypocrisy. 
As you look at yourself and you look around at others, do you ever think there's a problem with hypocrisy? You bet there is. Do you think there's some who try to get into the kingdom of God and try to fake their way through and where they are insincere and they worship but they want people to take notice of their worship? They give to those in need but they want people to take notice of that? They deny themselves and make sacrifice but they want people to take notice of that? That's insincere. Jesus is saying, not in my kingdom. In this kingdom, my relationship to God must be one of sincerity and not of hypocrisy. That's what verses 1 to 18 are all about. What a practical point. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?